Tonight's reading will be all of Psalm 4, which is on page 544 of the Church Bibles. So that's page 544, uh, Psalm 4, starting from verse 1. And uh, it's quite a short but powerful psalm, so I will read through it twice, um, and I'll leave a bit of time for us to reflect on David's words in between uh, before reading through it again. And unfortunately, I will not have stringed instruments accompanying me. So starting from Psalm 4. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. So for the second time. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you're on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Yvonne. Please do keep uh, Psalm 4 open in front of you. Um, that would be really helpful. Um, psalm 4 is, is a psalm that talks about peace in the midst of distress. So can you think of anything in your life that's recently caused you distress? Things big or small which you've gone through which have been hard or traumatic or frightening. Not one of us are immune to hardships. And whether it's small matters that you're dealing with, like an entire coffee spilt over your crisp white jeans before a big meeting, as I had not long ago, or uh, when your emails are down and you've got a big deadline to meet, another of my recent stresses, or other similar trivial things that have caused you concern. Or more likely, it's big, painful questions that we all go through. A difficult marriage, singleness, infertility, Friendships, or family relationships, intention, illness, redundancy, death. Whatever the hardship, David's reaction to a distressing time in this psalm is one we can learn a lot from. Because in this psalm, David challenges those around him, and therefore us, 
to make our faith in God real, not just nice sounding words said on Sundays, which aren't necessarily lived out. This is a really practical Psalm. David penned Psalm three, the one just before it, um, when his son Absalom was uh, revolting against him. And this betrayal um, of a family member could quite possibly be the background for Psalm four. But whatever the context was, David's going through a rubbish time. And as we delve into the psalm in the next few minutes together, I think we'll um, find we can learn a lot from it when we are suffering. We'll see how we can focus our thinking, direct our discipleship, and increase our faith in the midst of distress. David's presupposition, which I've said, which is unspoken but implied by the nature of his words, is that as Christians we're not promised a problem-free life. None of us won't have experienced trouble, as I've said, and as Ken mentioned recently as a church, we've known this all too painfully as we've suffered the death of several dear friends. Now, the hard times that we're going through or will be going through are unlikely to be the murderous intentions of your son, as it was for David, but problems both big and small will come our way, and you may be in the midst of it now. I think we can be assured from this psalm that no matter what we're going through, God cares about it, no matter the size. If it matters to your heart and your heart is troubled, it matters to God who created your heart. St. Augustine prayed, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. God is the source of our hearts and the source of their healing. Be assured that he cares deeply no matter how bleak it feels. And David doesn't necessarily ask in this psalm why we face trouble, but we do ask. And there are many reasons. Sometimes we'll face difficulties not because we do something wrong, but because we're following God's way. When we've done right by him, but still we're punished by a society or individuals that hold no regard for the way a Christian should live. But sometimes we do suffer because of our own disobedience. We suffer because we haven't followed God's plan A for our lives. And I'm sure we can all think of times where we've kicked ourselves for not listening to God first, for trust, for we've rebelled and done our own thing and not put our trust first in him. Sometimes we, we go through suffering because the enemy launches an attack. He launches an offensive on us because as we know in, in Peter, it says that, we, um, that he prowls, that he's like a prowling lion ready to attack. And we find we're inundated by spiritual attack. And yes, we know God is supreme and the victory is already his, but the enemy is still prince of this world as Jesus tells us in John's gospel. And if we deny that we're living in a spiritual war zone, we are denying much of God's word and we need to be well armed for the fight. And the way we react to suffering is going to be a powerful weapon which we can wield against the devil and his schemes. And sometimes we just don't know why we're going through suffering. We go through these times because we live in a fallen world and because we and those around us have fallen. But although we may, may never know the reasons why we suffer, we can see from this psalm that through suffering, no matter the reason behind it, we can find peace with God. So how does David deal with the time, the suffering that he's going through? There are three things he does which we'll spend our time looking at. Firstly, we can learn from David's priorities. For him, praise and prayer come first, which is my first point. 
In verse 1, David calls us urgently and confidently to God in prayer. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. By focusing on God's um, giving him righteousness, what David's doing is firstly focusing his prayer on God's character and grace. I know when I'm praying desperately, when I'm overwhelmed by something, I so often bring my situation straight to him rather than stopping to adore him for who he is. But David calls God's character to mind first here. And that's the best way to start a heart cry to God. And Jesus does the same in the Lord's Prayer when he says, hallowed be your name. By firstly recognizing who God is, David reminds himself of God's character as the upholder of grace and giver of righteousness. He also personalizes his cry. Look in verse 1 with my righteous God. I think we can take heart from this when we're in a situation because of our own disobedience. And when we come to God repentant, we can remember that God declares us righteous because we're in Jesus. So his righteousness becomes our righteousness, even when we've messed up and we're suffering because of our own disobedience. So by calling God my God, David also brings to mind that despite God's majesty, his relationship with him is deeply personal. When we address God with more than just formality, when we address him as a perfect and loving Heavenly Father, it enriches the spirit of our prayers. It also enriches our understanding of his character and therefore our expectation of his presence in our suffering. David next reminds himself of God's past goodness. And although the tense in the NIV here in verse 1b says, um, says, be merciful, uh, give me relief from my distress. Actually, the second half here can be translated as in tight places, you have made space for me, past tense. So after declaring God's goodness to begin with, David calls to mind times in the past that God has been faithful. Although he's been in tight places before, he reminds himself that then God made space for me. As he does that, and as we do that in our own prayers, it further builds confidence in both God's ability to help and also in his willingness to help this time around. And all this leads David to expect God's grace again. When prayer and praise come first, it leads to him asking for answers and relief, as he does in verse 1b. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. Praising God and reminding himself of God's character also reminds David that he lacks his own resources. He's clearly desperate and helpless here. How often I haven't done this. I've waited to ask God for help, firstly trying to get through on my own strength, rather than immediately recognizing that I desperately need God to come through for me. Maybe you find that too. We live in such a self-sufficient and individualistic culture, and perhaps this creeps into our faith too. We can rely on ourselves, our self-effort, as a first port of call, but then rely on God when we slowly realize we can't fix something on our own. We'd be better placed to rely fully on God from the off, as David does. Hebrews, I think, teaches us how to do this. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What does it look, mean to look unto Jesus? What does that look like? I think we can 
um, see it as, as something like this. If you are drowning and someone walks past you, you don't look at that person, you look unto them. You look unto them when you're, um, you turn to them and expect them to rescue you. And in the same way, we look unto Jesus, expecting him to save and heal and rescue us in the midst of a rough time because we know his power and love for us. Rather than looking to ourselves first, we are to keep looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's how God wants us to live. And that's how David lives out his faith here, calling to God straight away, not once other things have failed. Note also from the first verse here that David combines two things, thoughtfulness, i.e. bringing to mind God's character with urgency, i.e. his desperate need for God. That's such a great combination in prayer. Some things to go, go together naturally, like strawberries and cream and coffee and cake. And in a much more profound way, so does David's prayer. Thoughtfulness and urgency to begin with. And prayer isn't merely a technique for maintaining emotional equilibrium. It's praise that's both thoughtful and urgent. David's prayer and so many other prayers throughout the Bible seem to be really thoughtful, to dwell on God's character much more than we're prone to do. And they follow the, the thoughtfulness of the heart cry of urgency, as we see in verse 1. My righteous God is followed immediately by, give me relief. So all in one verse, in the midst of his emergency, David has declared God's character, remembered past mercies, pressed into God, focused on God's goodness, and pleaded for God's relief, all in 25 words. So our prayers don't have to be long and wordy. So that was my first point, prayer and praise first. Secondly, having grounded himself in God, we can learn from the way in which David warns and gives advice to three groups of people. So the second point is that he encourages those around him to turn away from their crutch, from their way of coping. So turn away from the crutch. He focuses on three groups of people in the next few verses here, all who seem to be dealing with the difficult situation that they're in, in ways that aren't good for them. I've labelled them the, the distracted, the hotheads, and the eels. And you can tell I'm not ordained, because if I was, they'd all begin with the same letter. He deals first with the distracted in verse 2. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? He points out the truth, the glory of his argument and the nonsensical nature of their reaction to suffering, their delusions. He suggests that these people are distracted from God, perhaps unconsciously, as we're prone to be, that they're seeking fulfillment in idols. And I'm sure we can all relate to this as well. What do we first turn to when the going gets tough to make ourselves feel better? What do you look to in those situations to fulfill you? Maybe things like ambition, a pay rise, perfectionism, looking for fulfillment in relationships when only God is our true fulfillment, drinking, exercise, or stuff, clothes, gadgets, comfort, houses, cars. I could go on, that's not an exhaustive list. Although if we are Christians, we're in Christ, there are still so many things that distract us from God, especially in London. 
And these things are not necessarily bad in themselves, but when we seek to put our trust in them, when we love their delusions, as it says in verse 2, we're looking to the created and not to the creator. We're looking to find fulfillment and a sense of belonging, a sense of identity in idols that can never satisfy. And we can dress this up and make it sound less serious. It's just my guilty pleasure. I need it to get me through. I feel so much better when I... But David points out that these crutches, these idols, are ultimately delusions. Look down at verse 2. He tells us where true joy and peace is to be found. God has made us for a relationship with him. Going on to verse 3, we see that God sets apart people for himself. God doesn't necessarily set them apart for honour or position or even primarily to be useful. But we're set apart for him. True, lasting fulfilment in both good times and bad is about a relationship with God. Like David, we can also experience that relationship with God is the ultimate answer to the most wounding of situations or the most painful of discouragements or the most hurtful of comments or the longest, hardest wait for a prayer to be answered, not our idols. Look down at verse 3. The word godly there in Hebrew is hasid, which is one of several names for God's people, referring to them as people who are devoted to God. David recognises here that he stands under the special protection of God as he suggests that a way to overcome the temptation to put our trust in idols is to hold on to how God sets you apart, to remind himself and to remind ourselves to hold on to what God says about us. He suggests that in the midst of distress, rather than using a crutch to get us through, that we should ask God to remind us that we belong to him. And God will do so. When David says, the Lord will hear when I call to him at the end of verse 3, he shows confidence in this. The message version of verse 3 says, he listens the split second I call to him. Now, if we have trouble remembering what God says about us, because I think we all do, let me give you a few examples to dwell on. Psalm 17 says that you are the apple of God's eye. Zephaniah 3 says that he rejoices over you with joy and pleasure. Romans 8 tells us that we're not condemned, but declared fully forgiven and righteous in Christ. Isaiah 43 verse 1, um, God says in this, Don't be afraid. I have redeemed you and called you by name. You are mine. What an identity to be reminded of. We are imputed with Jesus' righteousness, so we are uncondemned, chosen, called, prayed for by Jesus, who constantly intercedes for us. Loved enough for God himself to die for us. So having dealt with those who are distracted from God towards idols in their tough times, David, David's addressees seem to change in verse 4. Have a look here. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. David now seems to be speaking to a group who are angry, hotheads, 
for him, perhaps some of his own supporters who are angry, maybe on his behalf, because of what's been going on with his son Absalom. So if the distracted were too wavering in their affection towards God, these people here, the hotheads, are too quick to accuse God, to be angry or resentful of their situation. And I think this is another reaction to tough times that it's tempting to fall into, being cross, blaming God or others or ourselves. The word angry here means to shake with anger, tremble with rage. It's not saying don't be angry with the situation. It's saying it's okay to be angry, but don't sin while you're angry. Sometimes anger is fully justified, like when Jesus was angry at the tax collector, the money changers in the temple, or when he was angry at illnesses. But David's saying, don't sin in your anger, which could be the easy way to react, which is hard. How do we do that? I think the answer is in verse four as well. David suggests keeping quiet. So maybe he's saying here, instead of snapping when someone speaks down to us, or says something offensive to us, or insensitive, or someone just really annoys us, we shouldn't snap, and we shouldn't trust ourselves to deal with the situation. Inevitably, in the moment, I'm sure we've all found this, we won't be impartial. We're more likely to be kind if we keep our mouths shut, at least initially, not saying something we don't mean or that we will regret. Verse 4 also says, have a look, um, search your hearts, which was a Hebrew expression to Um, for to think on, to dwell on. So whereas in some situations it's good to bury the hatchet that day, David recommends that sometimes we need to sleep on a problem before we react to a tough situation, perhaps drafting an email in response to one that's frustrated us, but waiting till the next day to send it, when we've had space and time to pray. And we may not send it at all, or we may change its tone significantly. On your bed in verse 4 also implies in private, in peace, where there is space to breathe after our anger has flared up. David may be suggesting just taking time to come before God with an open and an honest heart is the best way to really deal with our feelings, fears, insecurities, anxieties when we're going through a hardship. Perhaps this honesty before God is the right sacrifice that God wants, which is down in verse 5. And such time resting on him leads us to trust in the Lord, again, as David commends to us in verse 5. Finally, he goes on in verse 6 to deal with the despairing of the eels. Each group of David's uh, friends, those around him, seem to be adding to his woes significantly. And the word many here in verse 6 may suggest that this is the biggest group of people. And they're sighing for better times. Who will show us any good? very Eeyore kind of woe is me kind of mentality. They're in a pit of of discouragement. And I know this is something we can all relate to, acting in this way when we're going through hardship, being pessimistic, not hoping too much so that we aren't disappointed. In our despondency, we ask, when will God change our mourning to gladness? How long do I have to deal with this, Lord? David's reaction here is to pray for God's help. Let the light of your face shine on us. He's effectively taking a line from a Hebrew worship song. The phrase, um, let the light of your face shine on us, was part of the benediction that the priests would use in the tabernacle. 
So creatively, he turns a worship song into a prayer for God's blessing upon the despondent. Sometimes using songs is a great way to pray when our own words fail us. I've found that a lot. And David also includes himself in this, shine upon us, O Lord. Which reminds us that we need to have a deep compassion for those around us who are overwhelmed. Not just for our own situation, our own hardship. So that was verse, that was the second point, turning away from the crutch. The final point is we meet with peace and joy in trusting in God. We meet with peace and joy in trusting. So the two outlooks we've seen so far, one trusting in other things, one looking to God in praise and prayer, are then compared in verse 7. Have a look down at it. David says he has more gladness in his heart than those around him either who are distracted or hotheads or eels, when they do, when all is going well for them. Note in verse 7 that David's joy has several characteristics. It's divine. You have placed. So it's God-given. It's also internal. Filled my heart. And it's also abundant with greater joy. So he's contrasting the kind of joy others have, there's being the rare product of a comfortable set of circumstances. Verse 7 says, when their grain and new wine overflow. But David's joy is steady in God, no matter the situation, whether the wine is flowing or not. So theirs is the joy when their situation works out, when the tax return is complete, or when they manage to squeeze onto their tube, or train in the morning rush hour, or when they beat their PB in the gym, or even when big prayers are answered. But David's joy is in the midst of him having a really rubbish time. His joy can't be snuffed out. And no matter what we're going through, we can know the deepest and most profound joy if our hope is in God and not necessarily on the situation working out. It's not bad to hope that it does, but don't make that the litmus test of your ability to be joyful because sometimes troubles don't go away and we may not know why that is but uniquely knowing Jesus gives us the kind of joy that is not circumstantial so much more than we may experience even if our troubles go away in verse 8 David goes on to talk about the deep peace he has despite his situation as well as the abundant joy when he says, I will lie down and sleep in peace. So for the last word of the psalm, for his parting message, if you like, David shows that he's peaceful in God. The situation hasn't necessarily changed, but he has. The word translated here as peace in the original Hebrew was used to imply both peace and trust and a sense of being unafraid. Peaceful, trusting, unafraid heart, which, as it says in verse 8, God causes, you alone make me dwell in safety, is well-founded and, and an even better state than the safety, which, note, comes second in verse 8 to peace. Now, don't think this is for the spiritually heroic, for super saints, for people who lead at church, for home group leaders, people who've been Christians for ages. This is the simple product 
of what happens when we admit we're hopeless, when we throw ourselves onto God's mercy, and when we trust in him and not in other things to help us deal with this tough situation. So despite all that you go through, all that you may be going through now, I can say this from bittersweet experience. We can know peace and trust and a lack of fear because God graciously gives us those things even if the, state, the safety, the solution seems far off. If we're knocking on a door, asking God to open the door, to change our situation, to answer our prayer, even when the door isn't opened, while we're waiting, we have so many reasons to praise God from the hallway. I had, um, and the staff team as well, had an amazing speaker at the HTB Leadership Conference this year called Father Raniero Cantalamessa. I think I've got that right. He talks about this issue, and he puts it like this. A Christian in whom the Holy Spirit dwells is not exempt from having to experience hardship, struggle, temptations, disorderly desires, rebellious feelings. But these are on the surface for a Christian. Yet there is a peace in the depth of their hearts that is like a deep ocean current, always flowing steadily, regardless of the wind and the waves on the surface. And it's my prayer that that's what we experience when we're going through tough times, when we use this psalm as a, as a practical tool, when we take the structure that David set out for us, we can, we can find that. Let's just pause. Lord Jesus, like David, we want to praise you for who you are, for your goodness, for your faithfulness in the past, for your ability to work in our present situation. And Lord, we acknowledge we need you so much more than we usually admit. And we especially need you in tough times. Oh Lord, we want to turn from the idols which we use to seek what can only be found in you. To turn from relying on ourselves or to turn from our anger or our despondency. Father God, would you fill our hearts with the peace and joy that only you bring that only you bring, and that are despite our circumstances. Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill our hearts with the joy of your presence. In Jesus' name. <laughs>